0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. James Todaro is the managing partner of Blocktown Capital, a cryptocurrency investment fund and a physician with a medical degree from Columbia University. In this conversation, James gives us an overview of COVID-19. He explains why this is different than other viruses and flus. He walks us through the vaccine and cure process for production. And then he talks to us about a potential cure that has recently been identified. This entire conversation was super enlightening, and I learned a lot from it. I'm thankful to James. But before we get into this episode, let's talk to one of our sponsors, Ledger. I'm going to play a recording now that they've made to tell you more about what they're doing, and then we'll get into the episode with James. I hope you enjoy it. Digital assets custody can be quite difficult to secure and hard to scale. Firms are often left with a difficult decision, having to choose between security or liquidity. At Ledger, we're obsessed that our clients' businesses succeed. That is why we decided to create a digital asset platform that would enable financial institutions and crypto firms to manage their funds without compromising on security and liquidity. Firms like Uphold, Bitstamp, Crypto.com, Index, and Dunamu are already using Ledger Vault to operate their business at scale while maintaining the highest standards of security to protect their clients' funds. Visit ledger.com/slash vault to learn more. Control. Scalability, agility, because security is not enough.
1: Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital, um, who is going to teach us everything we need to know about um, COVID-19 and uh, potential vaccines and cures. Uh, before we kind of jump into this conversation, I just want to um, kind of caution everybody. We're recording this remotely. Normally, we do everything in person, but given the remote recording, the audio may be a little shaky, so just bear with us if, uh, if anything happens. But uh, James, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us on those Short Notes. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start with your background. Uh, you know, I kind of want this to be the ultimate explanation of COVID-19 vaccines and cures, uh, but where do you, what does your knowledge base come from or kind of your training um, that gives you the perspective you have?
2: Sure. So I guess I really have kind of two backgrounds. So one is in medicine. So I graduated from medical school at Columbia University in New York uh, back in 2014, and then went on to do ophthalmology residency, so residency in eye surgery, and graduated from that in 2018. Um, I also studied epidemiology during college, during medical school and did some research in that as well, which kind of gave me a, another perspective, I think, on coronavirus and this epidemic, pandemic. Um, parallel to that background and what most people on Twitter and in this whole universe know me is for cryptocurrency for Bitcoin. It was in the last year of medical school, so end of 2013, 2014, when that, that first wave of people kind of got interested in it, it really caught my attention. And within a couple of weeks, uh, it, it just made sense to me. It was sound money, scarcity, censorship, resistance, Swiss bank account in your pocket, all the things that you've said many times. Um, and then I basically divided my time where half of it was spent in residency, which was already busy, but I also spent about 30, 40 hours a week studying cryptocurrency, investing in it. And so that worked out very well in 2017, gave me the ability to actually step away from clinical medicine. So in 2018, after I finished residency, I, I stepped away from clinical medicine entirely to focus on cryptocurrency investments in this space. Ironically, it's cryptocurrency that kind of got me back into the medicine space again now with coronavirus. Um, the, uh, so I guess quick aside, so Blocktown Capital is kind of what I've been focusing uh, attention on lately. That's uh, our GP only fund. Um, and so that's what we've been publishing research under. But with cryptocurrency, we manage a lot of investments in the space and it's very volatile and it's very impacted by world events. And so when I started seeing evidence come out of Wuhan and China of this coronavirus, it really caught my attention. And I was like, is this going to come to Europe and then America? And is it going to wreck the markets and (laughs) wreck havoc on, on my investments? And it didn't take long for me to become convinced that there was a really good chance it would. Um, especially when it started to seed in Europe. Um, and then, uh, and then, yeah, for the past couple of weeks, it's just been a whirlwind where I feel like every single day there's a new announcement that is surprising to a lot of people. Um,
1: Got it. So let's start with uh, kind of COVID-19 or coronavirus. I think everyone at this point has heard about it. Most people are uh, being quarantined or staying at home and staying away from people through social distancing. Give us kind of just a one minute, like what exactly is this and why is it different than all of the other um, kind of seasonal things that we would see uh, that, that are somewhat related?
2: So I think from a, a high level, one of the, the big differences from coronavirus is it's, actually, is its mortality rate. That was the big controversy uh, back, you know, three or four weeks, a month ago. Was, at first it was, this is only going to stay in China because it's not very, it's it's why would it spread to anywhere else? And so what you have to look at is the R naught. So that means for each person that's infected, how many people will that one person infect? And if it's more than one, then that means this has the potential to turn into an epidemic or pandemic, because now more people are being infected than recovering. Coronavirus did. That's what first caught my attention, which was makes it not different from the seasonal flu. Like that can have an R naught above one. But then that combined with this amounting evidence, especially with that ER doctor that was kind of the whistleblower on this, when he died, that really Got my attention. You can't, uh, you know, that death was was prominent. He was a young, supposedly healthy ER doc. So this was more fatal than the seasonal flu. You rarely see people from the seasonal flu that are young die, maybe sick, and then elderly people, sure. So the R naught is one thing. And to compare this to other historical, because I know, which I got a lot of flack for this early on in Twitter when I kind of started talking about coronavirus uh, in early February. They were like, just talk about Bitcoin, don't talk about this, don't you? What do you know about that? And one of the things people kept saying is, how is this different from the flu? This is no different from the flu. And um, it was that, or, or I was actually, so not only from the flu, but the second thing is someone is, is they, people felt like they were being tricked again by the media in the sense that SARS was supposed to be this big outbreak that didn't really seem to amount to much Ebola, but the, the is with SARS, which is why I realized early on, this wasn't playing out that way is SARS was not very contagious before you started having symptoms. So it was much easier to, this is longer than a minute, but uh, it was much easier to contain because once you got sick, you, you stayed home and then you didn't really infect anyone else. The big difference with COVID-19 novel coronavirus is that you can be contagious while you're asymptomatic. So you don't know and you're spreading it. And then you get sick a few days later, but you already infected two, three, four people. Um, So I'd say that's why this is different than, say, Ebola or SARS. And then it also combines that more fatal element uh, than the seasonal flu. Our bodies are not used to this virus, essentially.
1: Got it. And so um, before we get into what I'll call kind of the vaccine and cures component of this, um, a lot of what you just described, uh, your analysis, kind of those original alerts that you saw, red flags, um, is all about data, right? And one of the questions I think a lot of people have is, uh, we've got a pretty good sense of the accuracy of uh, the deaths, right? So the aggregate number of deaths, somebody died, you can test them. Did they have it? Did they not? Uh, maybe before or after death. Uh, but the denominator to that mortality rate is how many people actually can, uh, get infected and then how many people die. Uh, there's not a lot of testing that's gone on. So how did you come kind of that kind of caught your attention in the beginning? Uh, you know, some of the red flags you saw, et cetera. Uh, I think that there's a lot of confidence um, in the death number, just given that people are actually dying it's pretty easy to, uh, to confirm that. And, and you can either have uh test them before or after death to see if they have this, but the actual number of infected, given the low amount of testing that's available, especially, uh, in the United States and in parts of Europe early on, how did you think through the accuracy of the data, um, uh, or, or kind of understand, you know, how bad is this, or could we just be looking at bad
2: data? So that's a great question and that's still actually an important question is how many people are we actually detecting that have coronavirus that was one of the big problems is rolling out this testing to be able to determine that and so and even today a lot of the experts on this including myself my opinion is the fatality rate probably is lower than what's coming out of say Italy which is 5% or so there's a really good chance that people with milder symptoms maybe aren't going into the hospitals to get tested or staying home. And sure, they're bedridden. It could be the worst flu worst flu of their life, but they recovered. But those would all be people that lived and didn't die. Um, so that still could be the case. Um, I guess one thing, though, that pointed me to, guys, that kind of goes in the other direction of the mortality rate is because this is a pandemic, the amount of cases was rapidly increasing. So back in January and early February in China, when it was still increasing, you actually had to compare the number of deaths to about the number of cases 10 days ago, because when you right when you test positive or get it, you don't die. There's a 10 day delay. So looking at that delay, when it's rapidly rising in China, it gave me an impression this mortality rate was there was actually a, a fact. The other side of this might be higher than those numbers, but then also there were maybe undetected cases. So I kind of balanced that out. And it's, you know, you just have a rough number, but it looked like there was still. It was it was a reasonable fatality rate, far worse than the flu. Got it. That makes sense. Um, okay. So
1: now that we understand kind of what this is and, and the fact that um, the infection rate and, and kind of the symptomatic versus asymptomatic um, are all reasons why this is more concerning, let's walk through... Um, why don't we already have either a vaccine or a cure for this? Like, like what's kind of the scientific explanation behind the
2: lack of that stuff being uh, available today? Sure. So you really, it's, it's difficult to make a vaccine for a virus that you don't know of. So this is novel coronavirus, it's new. So we, you wouldn't expect us to have a vaccine for it. What we can do is isolate parts of this virus and then introduce it in, in cultures and form a a weaker version of this virus that we can then give to people. That's essentially what we do it either. Uh, when you get a vaccine, you're getting either a dead version of the virus or a weakened version. And so your body, most of the time you don't even feel anything. Sometimes you feel a little bit under the weather. And so what that does is now you don't really get sick, but now you have immunity to that disease. Um, so that takes knowing the virus, studying it, and then coming up with the vaccine. That realistically, we're not looking to have that until mid-2021. Early 2020 would be a shock. Um, if we even are able to successfully come up with one. Regarding a cure for it, viruses are are very hard to cure. So coronavirus on a uh, molecular biology level is a single-stranded RNA virus. So what this means is it mutates quite rapidly. So there are times when we can cure viruses. We have cured certain viruses like hepatitis C in the past with medicine, but it's, it's notoriously hard. A lot of times what you can have is find a treatment that can work some part of the time um, and kind of flatten the curve in in how uh, fatal this virus can be or how much it will spread. Got it. And
1: so what's the process? Let's start with uh, maybe the cure first and then we can go to the vaccine. What's the actual process that people will go through to um, test uh, and, and actually validate that, yes, there is something out there that can be a cure?
2: It's a long process. So you have uh, very early studies in cultures, and then next you have a very small uh, trials of you know 50 patients, and then you kind of keep blowing it up from there. The U.S. is very cautious, very regulated when it comes to studying and approving, the FDA approving of medications. And that has saved the U.S. in the past from certain medications being harmful, like the thalidomide is a chemical that's actually very toxic to pregnant women. And so this was rolled out in Europe, but the U.S. said, wait, hold the brakes on that. And that turned out to be a good decision. In the situation of a pandemic, though, it kind of works against us because we don't have six months, a year, 18 months to be like, we're going to find a vaccine or a medication to treat this and go through all those proper steps. Which we usually do. And so that's where, you know, I've kind of been focusing on a treatment, potential treatment that's already widely available, known safety effect profile, and something that about a million people or so globally are already on. So if this could actually cure or help reduce the symptoms or reduce the amount of people get infected with coronavirus, that could be huge. It wouldn't really, you could expedite those trials in that process much more quickly than developing a whole brand new uh, treatment over the next six to 18 months. Got it.
1: And then is it similar process for the vaccine as it is for the cure? Um, or is there a completely different process with different timelines and complexities?
2: I would say a vaccine would even probably take a little bit longer. Um, Especially if you talk, because now you're talking about rolling this vaccine out to a large number of people. So, if you're going to all of a sudden start making like the flu vaccine where you're recommending just about everyone in America or in the world gets this vaccine, you don't want to mess that up, right? <laughs> Whereas a treatment, you can be like, okay, well, this person's already sick. We know that there is a 3% mortality rate. We know that this treatment has a very favorable side effect profile potentially. And so, it's much easier to prove that as opposed to rolling out something that's in healthy people um, that we don't you know, the side effect profile has been studied less. Because there's, that that the vi- there's always that concern with the vaccine that that weakened virus could mutate into a harmful virus. And then, it, you know, you don't want to die from the vaccine. Got it.
1: And, and I think that I saw, um, this is like the uh, in, Imperial College paper uh, that recently came out. Uh, their whole thing was, even if you start uh, identifying what you think could be a vaccine, it's got that really long time frame, kind of twelve to fourteen months. They said at the earliest um, until you could confirm it. And it sounds like a lot of that, sort of what you're saying, is revolves around just like you can't go tell people this can save you from you know COVID nineteen, but oh by the
2: way, there's twenty you know, percent chance it could kill you at the same time. Right? You've got to act for sure. You know what? It's actually safe for the human. Right. The first three in medicines do no harm. Right. So you don't want to introduce them to something that's going to actually be more harmful to them. Just. You know, maybe living out the course of the disease. Got it.
1: Okay, and so talk to us a little bit about the uh, the potential cures that uh, that you're looking at. Um, I know that there's some uh, some encouraging uh, I, th- I think reports and data that is starting to come out now um, as to how uh, th- there there may be some things that will actually cure this or or at least reduce the symptoms.
2: Yeah. So what I've been focusing on with uh, with one of my colleagues is. Basically, it was about two weeks ago now, I started seeing evidence coming out in guidelines and from China and South Korea about chloroquine being a potential treatment for coronavirus. And started doing a little bit more digging into that. There was some mechanisms of action that showed how hydroxychloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, they're, I going mean, to kind of use them interchangeably. They're very similar drugs. I can talk about the differences in a little bit, but it has mechanisms to... Uh, decrease viral replication in cells and actually eliminate that process entirely, um, at least in vitro. And they studied this in the SARS version of coronavirus. And so there's already invasive in vitro studies for that. This kind of idea, which wasn't really talked about yet about uh, chloroquine being a treatment for coronavirus was kind of justified in my mind when I started to see the United Kingdom banned export of the active pharmaceutical ingredients in chloroquine. China did similar. They essentially announced in early February, look, the priority, they brought it back in the Chinese New Year early and said, hey, look, we need you to produce chloroquine in high volume. We're gonna stop all exports of this. And we need to prioritize Wuhan in our own country uh, to make sure that we can stop this. And then in March 9th, I had been with pharmacies and one of the pharmacies I contacted, contacted the manufacturer of Rising Pharma of chloroquine. And announced and told us there's a national shortage of it and so all these things in my mind was like you know basically triggered there's something big going on behind the scenes either they think chloroquine may be an effective treatment or it already potentially is an effective treatment and so that's when i started talking about it on twitter and to to a lot of colleagues and this is when um, one of my uh, colleagues on twitter contacted me and said hey i've been studying chloroquine for a number of years It looks like, you know, I know the mechanism of action behind this very well. I have a paper that I put together, take a look at it and see what you think. And I looked at it, I changed, added some clinical elements to it. Uh, I was actually already familiar with Corquin on a clinical level because one of the main side effects uh, is vision loss. You can have, it's it's very rare, but you can have vision loss from it. And so I've seen a lot of patients that were on it. And so I was able to add those elements to it and more of a clinical, I guess, impression of it. um, and again, that's because I was an ophthalmologist, so I saw that's why I saw those patients. And we released that paper, and it got a ton of attention. It was retweeted by Elon Musk shortly thereafter, and it just kind of blew up from there. And we were contacted by press, the media. Uh, my co-author, so Greg Vigano, has now been on the Laura Ingram show. He was on uh, Tucker Carlson last night. I think he was on Glenn Beck today as well. Um, and it's uh, you know it's really, it's starting to become a little bit more justified. So what we had was this kind of summary of all this evidence, I think, to show that corpone might be an effective treatment. And then what I announced yesterday, which was we have been in contact with uh, Didier Rayol, this very famous uh, infectious disease doctor, MD, PhD out of France. And he's been studying this for the last uh, few weeks as a treatment for patients with uh, coronavirus. And he had very positive results. It was a very, It was a small study just about 36 people that stayed enrolled till the end. But it showed that the combination of hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin. So again, hydroxychloroquine is like chloroquine. It just actually has a safer side effect profile. So it's kind of used more often than chloroquine. Um, but it showed a, a very small sample size still, but showed 100% decrease in viral load in in the in 100% of the patients receive both hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, And so this is a small, again, a small sample size, but very positive results uh, regarding this treatment method. And this was announced by my co-author on Tucker Carlson last night. And it seems like Donald Trump reacted to that as he, in his press conference today, talked about, he specifically talked about antimalarial medications, hydroxychloroquine, how this needs to be expedited and cut through the red tape if possible to allow physicians, to make physicians feel comfortable in using this drug to treat COVID-19 positive patients. It's
1: pretty crazy that it seems like many of these people are getting their news from television or from Twitter, but it's human nature at this point, right? A lot of this content that gets shared around, that's where people are learning from. Um, Walk us through uh, what is the difference uh, between the hydroxy Chloroquine, I think is how you say it, and yeah, um, yeah. zithromycin. Um, what, what are those two things kind of at the, at the core, right? And understanding that most of the audience isn't going to be highly scientific, but just how would you describe yeah. those?
2: So hydroxychloroquine is really used mainly as an immunosuppressant. So it's actually used for treatment in patients with rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. It kind of suppresses the immune system in the way to keep the body from attacking itself. It also again has antiviral properties and anti uh, parasitic properties so it's used as a uh, prophylactic or treatment for malaria. It's very popular in in Africa. Azithromycin is typically known as being an antibiotic. Usually prescribed for bacterial infections, but studies have shown it has antiviral properties. So coronavirus is a virus, it's not a bacteria, so that's a very important difference. That's why they can't give you antibiotics for just a, a seasonal for the cold. I mean, you'll, you could ask for them, people often ask for them, but it really isn't going to actually help because it's a totally different type of species. But azithromycin actually has antiviral properties in bronchial epithelial cells, and this is where coronavirus will attach, and in fact, is a lot of the respiratory tract. And so azithromycin, it makes sense why it could help treat or be preventative for uh, coronavirus. Got
1: it. And then, when you talk about those being used uh, in unison, is this actually like a um, a scientific mixture, right? Meaning that you're you're uh, creating one single solution by combining these two, or is this two separate, either shots or uh, however they're actually administered, they're, they're kept separate, but you basically take them at the same time?
2: Correct. So, in the French study, which is really the the most data we have at this time on this combination therapy, it's two separate pills. So you take your hydroxychloroquine, and then you take your azithromycin. And so what he did for the hydroxychloroquine, it was a 10-day treatment of it at 600 milligrams a day. And then azithromycin was a 500 milligram loading dose the first day, and then 250 milligrams for, I believe, the next four days. Um, So oral form, separate pills, but used uh, in tandem combination. Got it.
1: And so where do we go from here, right? We've identified these two drugs that we think um, have the potential to uh, be effective in uh, treating this. Uh, We've got what I'll call kind of an initial early study um, that shows some uh, encouraging results. We obviously don't have time to go through kind of the traditional process, but as you mentioned earlier, we want to make sure people are safe and and actually uh, can validate the efficacy of this. So like, what does that process
2: look like or where do we go from here? So I think one of the, what I kind of alluded to earlier, one of the interesting things about hydroxychloroquine is so many people are already on it. So you already have a million or so people. So if there is a way to analyze that data that already exists and see if any of those people are getting infected with coronavirus, and as the uh, incidence or prevalence of coronavirus goes up, you should start to see overlap. You should start to see lupus patients or rheumatoid arthritis patients who are on hydroxychloroquine as becoming infected. And so, if you were able to create a study that could analyze that group of people, and maybe it's too self reported or some other means, then it'd be, a, I think, a safe way to evaluate the efficacy of this drug very quickly, as opposed to doing a controlled trial where you had placebo and all that. Got it.
1: And, and so, once we get past um, kind of those studies, so I think of studies maybe correctly or incorrectly as the way to gather data. Where, like, What are the milestones or uh, kind of the, the stamps of approval? Like, what does that look like? Is that the people who run the study saying, hey, stamp of approval, this works? Is there some kind of overarching, like a uh, governing body uh, or, or government organization? What, what does that kind of approval process look like before it can actually um, start being given to patients uh, kind of on the ground?
2: Yeah, you. Uh, so there's basically two different ways. So you either have to come to the FDA with sufficient evidence to show that this medication is safe and beneficial in the treatment of a specific disease. That's the, if you want to call it, on-label use. So that's uh, you know what the prescription is designed for, let's say. Doctors also have the option, though, to use medicines off-label, which means this is not the FDA-approved indication for it, but doctors still have the ability to prescribe medications where they think appropriate or necessary in patients uh, that it's uh, not the, the specific indication that the FDA approves. This is where things get interesting, though, because in, in America's uh, medicine is fairly litigious. So if you as a physician deviate from that standard of care and then something goes wrong, even if that something went wrong was you know a small percent and that could happen to either you know someone with an FDA approved indication it still makes you vulnerable to a lawsuit and traditionally it's academic uh, physicians or people or physicians are very comfortable experimenting with new use cases for these drugs that will see those patients. The problem we're seeing in a pandemic is those physicians, those academic they're kind of becoming overwhelmed. You have patients all over, so it's not just a very rare case of something where you're looking for a physician that will uh, will treat this thing with this off label off label use. You have physicians everywhere that are kind of stuck in this thing where do I use a certain medication off label to treat all these coronavirus patients that are coming into my ward, or do I just, you know, give them IV fluids and uh, you know hope they get better? And that's I think the question that a lot of physicians in the U.S are dealing with right now. And so they're looking for some guidance from the FDA, essentially saying, hey, look, you can use, which that's kind of what Trump did a little bit today. The FDA, I think, backpedaled on that a little bit, but he essentially said, look, I'm approving people for uh, approving physicians to use the, this medication, uh, hydroxychloroquine, in coronavirus patients. Um, I don't know if it's really that hard of a, that, uh, that really passed through it. I think there's still some red tape that maybe needs to go through, but that's essentially, I think, what he's aiming at.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting to see a lot of um, kind of the bureaucracies uh, and red tape in the healthcare system being uh, almost broken down in this crisis, right? So everything from uh, what you're talking about, kind of the acceleration or approval process uh, to um, you know the ability for a doctor to actually... Uh, administer healthcare services to a patient in a different state, right? A lot of telemedicine stuff, et cetera. Um, I, for those that aren't aware of how bureaucratic healthcare is, there's a lot of rules that uh, to, I think you kind of mentioned earlier make sense sometimes, and other times they seem really stupid, right? And so it takes a crisis like this to uh, kind of break some of those down. And then maybe some of them get reinstated later, or maybe they don't. But, but it's just been fascinating to me to kind of watch this. Uh, almost tennis match between here's the rules today. Well, should we keep them?
2: Or is this kind of an emergency situation? Let's get rid of them. Yeah, exactly. You kind of take a, a hard look and say, wait, which of these rules are actually high yield and which ones are just, uh, you know, vestiges of old bureaucracy that is maybe due to lobbyists or who knows. For sure.
1: Um And, and so to finish up here, uh, obviously you've got um kind of, two parts of your brain right now, I almost think of, right? You've got the the medical side and the training that you've done there. Uh, and obviously the hours and hours that you've spent kind of looking at this um, and starting to identify some of the potential solutions. But then you also are uh, an investor and you're managing capital and things like that. Where's the crossover in terms of how do you see uh, coronavirus and the economic impact um, kind of continuing over uh, across different markets uh, in the coming weeks and months?
2: Yeah, so... It's constantly changing, but I think you have to kind of look out for three different potential paths uh, coming up over the next few months or years. So there's the first path where we do find a medication, a treatment, or a prophylactic that can flatten the curve, reduce the symptoms, reduce the fatality rate, or reduce the number of people that get infected. And that could buy us time until maybe a vaccines developed, or even until we have herd immunity and this thing in coronavirus just becomes almost like the flora of the seasonal flu and not really a big deal. The second uh, path is the virus mutates a little bit. So almost like H1N1, uh, where it was kind of thought of as a big deal, a higher fatality rate. And then it kind of mutated in a way where a lot of people got it. So it was affected a lot of people, but the mortality was actually quite low. So that's why it didn't even hit the radar all that much. And most people didn't know how many people were actually affected by it. Um, And then the third path would be if the virus does not mutate, it, it uh, we do not have a medication or vaccine for it. Then that's scarier, obviously. And what I think you could be looking at is maybe, and this is based off China and South Korea, how their cases have stabilized. Their number of new cases is dramatically dropping. That is this have to do with the warmer weather coming in, and are we going to see a second wave come the fall? And that's what a lot of people compare this to the Spanish flu of 1918, where it had its first wave that kind of ended around June, July. And it wasn't until about October, November, the second wave came in. And that's the one that really wiped out a lot of people. And so that's something that you're going to be looking out for is if this does settle down, that's great. That's fantastic. But keeping a close eye for reinfections infections in areas um, come the fall. On a short-term basis, um, for Americans, look at Italy. We're running about 10 days behind Italy. So what Italy is going through now will be America most likely in 10 days. And this just seems so obvious to me over the past couple of weeks. Um, and so that's why it was interesting. A couple of weeks ago, almost no one was really talking about it. It was almost like a joke. Um, and you were, it was awkward if you were to shake someone's hand or something. Now it's not. And if you actually just look at those stories coming out of Italy about the people living there, what that life is like, prepare for that because that could easily be America uh, in 10 days. And I think it's already getting very close to that. And so looking for uh, stabilization of coronavirus, again, look at Italy. When those cases stop going up and st- stabilize, I think that's good news. And I think that there's hope for this stabilizing, at least over the summer. And then we'll have to revisit it in the fall. And then I Got think it. the market, so Bitcoin and Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, I think that all kind of goes in something this massive, it seems like it kind of is... Uh, trading along with the, when the economy is going down, it's it's, a risk on asset and it goes down as well. Um.
1: Yeah. One of the things that uh, I've heard, and I don't know if it's true or not, um, is that once you get coronavirus, uh, you basically can't get reinfected, right? So the population itself, some portion could get infected, it goes away and comes back and could reinfect other people. But is it true that the individual itself, once you have it, Um, you can't get it again, or is it just too early to know whether that's uh, accurate or not?
2: So that's typically how viruses work. Once you get a viral infection, you can't get that really exact same viral infection. Um, There can be different strains of it, though. That's why you can get the flu multiple years. It's not like you get the flu once and you never get the flu again. Another strain can come out the next year, or you might get infected with a different strain even that year. Um, they are finding, though, that they are fi- patients that test negative after they've been treated later than test positive again for the virus. And so that's concerning in some ways in the thought that are they not treating patients long enough? Is this some type of reinfection? Um, and so that that that's, that, that uh, data is being studied now. But um, I'm inclined to think that's how you get herd, herd immunity is potentially as you... If you get infected, you won't get it again. So that's kind of the hope, but it's not definitive at this point. Got it.
1: In, in those different strains, I think the other thing I've heard is basically when the warm weather comes, it may kind of migrate south uh, to South America, Latin America, etc. cetera. Uh, but there could be mutations. And then when the cold weather returns later this year uh, North America, for example, um, that's where really uh, there could be some problems because now you're not just talking about uh, the coronavirus, but there could be multiple sh- uh, strains of this or, or kind of mutations um, that even if you already had it, you're still susceptible to, to the new stuff.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think that uh, one thing that people argue that for going away during the summer is increased temperature will dry out the the virus in some ways and then also the increased humidity so it's kind of like you have this heat tennis a sun drying effect but then you also have the humidity in the air which will uh stop the spread of the virus because if there's enough air water particles in the air it'll stop the the viral particles from kind of you know projecting when you talk or sneeze or cough
1: got it that's no, super interesting um okay and then what do you think is kind of the uh if you had a guess right now what, what does this look like uh, over the next kind of six to eight weeks? Do we flatten the curve, you know, two weeks from now and um, and, and kind of start moving back towards, uh, you know, everyday life? Do we stay in kind of this self-quarantined, um, you know, even some places shelter in place for, for weeks, months? Like, how do you think this plays out, given the information you have today?
2: Uh, you're going to be quarantined for at least weeks. I would say at least a month could be a couple months, three months. It kind of depends on this thesis on this thing slowing down for the summer. But I think we're in for a rocky few weeks uh, coming up. And uh, it looked like Italy was stabilizing a little bit, but then they recorded a record number of new cases yesterday and another record number it looks like today. So it's we haven't had any, uh, there's been no evidence this is slowing down really for Italy or Europe. And so that, that's not good news for us right now either. Got it. And then
1: what do you take um, in terms of uh, China? I think today we're recording on, a, on Thursday, uh, March 19th. Um, it was either yesterday or today they reported no new cases. So, you know, quote unquote, zero new cases. Uh, can we trust the data? You know, how, how do you kind of fit that data point into this whole thing?
2: So I'm in contact with people that have come back from China and they feel convinced that China has it under control and that that data is real. That's always been the question, though, is from the very beginning. You know, China didn't really want to announce that this was the virus. She had the whistleblowers that were originally persecuted and now praised. And so there is this always this distrust of the information from China. But South Korea has a kind of very positive results. I think Singapore has been doing a good job controlling this. Um, and so it's, it's possible. It's also possible on the uh, kind of social infrastructure side of things. I think uh, in China and, and South Korea, you know, the social distancing is maybe a lot easier or if the government recommends it or imposes it, it's done much more effectively. Whereas in Italy and the U S you know, a lot of people are like, well, you know, screw that. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm going to go kiss whoever's cheek I want. I'm going to go to the bars. And so I think that it really takes a little bit more to scare people. And now people are starting to get scared where maybe they're scaling back on that a little bit. But if you read a lot of the Italians, what they're telling Americans right now is do that. Now don't, don't wait until it gets so bad that, you, you know, there's a curfew, you can't, you have, if you're outside, like in, China, in Italy right now, if you go outside, you have to essentially have a pass or a very good evidence or reason for being out. Otherwise, you get fined. And the only reason you really allowed to go out is to go pick up medication or to go to grocery stores. Yeah.
1: I, the other thing I just saw um, literally right before we started recording, uh, and again, so I'll caveat with, I, I haven't had the time to look at the accuracy of it, is um, Israel, is actually implementing, uh, martial law. Um, uh, so like yeah. actual true martial law where the, the government, uh, or the military is going to enforce people staying inside curfews, you know, all of this kind of non-essential traffic, etc. Um, and, and so I think that, uh, we're probably far away away from that, you know, in the U S for example, uh, or other places, but, you know, depending on uh, people's reactions, I think that, uh, yeah, you know, there is this overarching feeling of like we've got to flatten that curve and, and kind of fight back against this.
2: I would say there's a non-zero chance some version of martial law comes to the U.S. as well in the next two, three weeks. I mean, if, uh, if this thing continues to spread and people aren't uh, voluntarily uh, kind of isolating themselves, then it's, it's definitely possible. I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me in the next two three weeks. Which sounds crazy yeah. for Americans, it's, especially because a lot of Americans have guns, so well, it's a little bit of a different uh... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, I, I, uh, I was explaining to somebody the other day, if you would have said four or five weeks ago, you know, hey, the stock market's going to go down 30%. There's the possibility of martial law, you know, all, all these different things. People would have looked at you like you were nuts. And in a very yeah. short period of time,
2: uh, you know, here we are. Yeah, exactly. And I think that uh, people could be in for a little bit more surprises in the next couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, well, let's uh, let's all hope not. And uh, hopefully we can get back to normal yep. life. Absolutely. Yep. Well, James, listen, I really appreciate you coming on on uh, such a short notice and, and helping us understand this. Where can people find you uh, online and, and kind of find more about what, uh, what you're tracking um, and paying attention to?
2: Uh, James Tadaro, MD, is my Twitter account. It looks like uh, Joe just put it on the screen there. Uh, that's the best way to follow. Joe's me. a I legend. Look at about. him, man. I know, he's quick. That's where I talk about coronavirus updates. Uh, a lot of times it's affect uh on the Bitcoin cryptocurrency markets, so and that's where I talk about all my crypto insights as well.
1: Awesome. Before I let you go, I got uh, two questions that you get to ask me one uh, favorite book or most important book you've ever read?
2: <laughs> most important book I ever read. Um, gosh, I guess Treasure Island for no real reason, except it was a book that it was probably the first very sophisticated book that my dad read to me. He read it to me when I was very, very young. And it was actually funny because he, he, I felt like he was too slow. So after he read the first maybe few chapters of it, I actually just picked it up and read the rest of the book on my own. And so that really stands out in my mind.
1: I love that. It's uh, it's one of those things where it's not only the book, but the time of your life when you read it that uh, that makes something important. Exactly, so that's pretty cool. Exactly. Uh, aliens, believer or non-believer?
2: <laughs> I think there is life uh, somewhere out there in another universe in, in some way. It isn't uh, that I think that's definitely possible.
1: Well, just because the world's so you know, kind
2: of the, the galaxy's so big, or, or some other reason? I mean. Infinite, with infinity, you have an infinite number of possibilities, right? So you can have an infinite combinations of matter that can form humans or people or animals or life. It's a fair way to view the world. Uh, what one question do you have for me to finish up?
1: Do you, does anyone ever call you Anthony or is it always pump? <laughs> so uh, my mother still calls me Anthony um okay. and uh my, my family uh they actually all call me aj uh my initial, anthony john uh Poppliano is my name okay. so they call me uh initials uh for first and middle name but uh pretty much today if somebody calls me anthony uh it's usually followed up with by the way can i call you pop or is that are we not like gotcha. close enough yet um gotcha. and, and i tell people that uh you can call me whatever you want, just don't call me an asshole, and we'll, we'll be good.
2: It's Anthony, Pop, whatever it all works for me. All right, man. Well, it was great talking to you. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks so much, James. Appreciate it. All right, have a good one.
0: Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, Simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.